0: Grab a Bible. You're going to want one. Once more to Romans eight. I think this is message five, and we're just getting warmed up. My brother Robert said last week or the week before, "You're taking like a Johnny Mac pace through through this." John MacArthur, pastor of Grace Community Church, known wide, you know far and wide as, as as Johnny Mac. He he. When when you say verse by verse teaching, he really does sometimes a verse. At a time, a verse a week. But, but what's interesting, I actually chased this down. The last time he taught through Romans 8, he did Romans chapter 8 in just eight messages. That's warp speed for him. My pastor, the first time I heard someone teach through Romans 8, took six months. And it was Wednesday nights, but still 25 or so messages just through one chapter. I thought he was insane at the time. Twenty-some years later, I get it. It makes sense now. But my all-time favorite, I don't know if he's the all-time record holder, but my all-time favorite teacher of Romans 8, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the doctor, because he was a medical doctor before he was a pastor. He had an M.D., One of the most important teachers of the 20th century, if you don't know the name, it's worth getting to know Martin Lloyd-Jones' teaching, his ministry. He was one of Pastor Chuck's favorites, actually. Pastored Westminster Chapel in London for some 30 years. During that time, he taught a Friday night series just on Romans, 366 messages in all. 72 of them on Romans chapter 8. And they're wonderful. You can listen to them online. I'll, I'll post a link on our Facebook page. I'll send it out through the, through the Simple Church list. But, but one of the things I appreciate about the doctor, about Martin Lloyd-Jones, unlike a lot of people in the circles that he ran in, is he had a high view of the present work and ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And I mean, he was a 20th century pastor, so that, that doesn't make him unique. But when he, you hang out with pastors and scholars like John Stott who, and, and, and R.C. Sproul, people who are not just cessationists, but aggressively cessationists, determined cessationists, who don't believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, reject the idea outright that the gifts of the Spirit are for today, who have a, a very limited and narrow view of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in general, how refreshing it is to come across a guy who traveled in those circles and yet remained adamant that the Holy Spirit is still alive, still at work in our hearts today, assuring us of God's love and equipping us to do his work. And I, and I think that probably, if it doesn't have everything to do with why he loved Romans 8, it's got to have a lot to do with it. Because as we turn back to Romans 8 this morning, the Holy Spirit jumps off the page at us. 22 mentions, I think, just in this chapter. Paul hasn't referred to the Holy Spirit by name up to this point. Chapter 8, he can't stop talking about him. He was talking about him when we left off last week. He's going to talk about him again this morning. And the question Paul has for us, the question he's going to ask us today, is what's our relationship with the Holy Spirit today? Do we have one? we think of them that way? Do we think of the Holy Spirit as a person with whom we can have a relationship? And what kind of relationship is it? Are we being filled with the Holy Spirit today? That's the big question this morning. That's the big idea if you're taking notes. You can write that at the top. Are we being filled with the Holy Spirit when we left off, Paul was reminding us, let's, let's rewind a little bit to get some momentum back. Verse 8, Paul was reminding us, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And that was all of us before we came to Christ, right? Fortunately, we came to Christ. We confess our sin. We ask forgiveness, the forgiveness that Jesus purchased at the cross. And so we're no longer who we were, no longer limited by our flesh, verse 9. The Spirit of God has come to dwell in us. That's part of what it is to be saved. God the Holy Spirit comes to live in us. And if, go down to verse 11, if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in us, and he does, What Paul really means is because God the Holy Spirit, who raised Jesus from the dead, dwells in us, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in us. Romans 8, verse 11. And we said last week that one way to read that is that God is going to give us new bodies at the rapture Whether we're raptured or whether we're raised from the dead at that time, we're given new bodies, immortal bodies, to replace these obviously defective bodies, these inherently sinful bodies, these bodies that are in no way fit for heaven. That's one way to read verse 11, and it's true that that's going to happen. But another way to read the verse, and I think a more important way to read the verse, is closer to what it actually says, that the Holy Spirit will give life to these mortal bodies. Yeah, we're going to get immortal bodies, and that's going to be great, because I'm tired of mine. But in the meantime, the Holy Spirit will give, is giving life to these mortal bodies. The power that raised Jesus from the dead will enable us to live spiritual lives in these corrupt carcasses. Spirit filled lives, overcoming lives, lives that serve and honor God, lives that resist sin. I think that's the more important way to read verse 11. And one way I know that is that Paul keeps talking about it in verse 12. Let's push forward this morning. And I'm in completely the wrong place. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors—not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Pause. Paul, Paul is saying we've got a choice. Therefore, because the Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us, because the power that raised Jesus from the dead—he says that twice to make sure that we don't miss it—has come to live in us. Today we have a choice we didn't have before. Flesh or spirit? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. Flesh or spirit? I said that right? I don't know, Rob. It's catching, man. <laughs> But how do we make that choice? What do we think about that will help us make the right choice? What do we do do when no one's looking, when no one's watching, when we know no one will ever know the choice that we make? Are we led of the Spirit? Are we led of the flesh? Paul says, verse 12, start with this thought. Try this on for size. What do you owe your flesh? What did your flesh ever do for you? What, What good did your flesh ever do for you? Our flesh did a lot for us. None of it was good. If your flesh was anything like mine, it promised a lot of good. Our flesh is great at making promises. Health, wealth, happiness, everything under the sun. What did it actually deliver? Nothing good. In fact, if Jesus hadn't intervened, if Jesus hadn't sacrificed himself for us and allowed himself to be crucified in his flesh, our flesh would have dragged us, our souls, straight to hell. My family used to play Monopoly on Thanksgiving. Sometimes it was even fun. I was thinking about that on Thanksgiving. You know, without Christ, we would have all had different trips around the board. Some of us would have been the car or the top hat or the wheelbarrow. Some of us would have built houses or hotels, accumulated a big stack of cash, won a beauty pageant. But we all, sooner or later, would have ended up on that square that says, Go to hell. Go directly to hell. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. So what do we owe our flesh exactly? Zero, Paul says. All our flesh ever did was take us where we didn't plan to go, keep us longer than we planned to stay, cost us more than we ever planned to pay. So make a different choice, he says in verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Make the right choice. Some people find that a troubling verse, verse 13. Because it's clear at this point, Paul is talking to believers now. He's talking to Christ's followers. He's saying to them, is he saying to them we could lose our salvation? Is he saying that we could come to Christ and still end up dying eternally? At first reading, it sounds like that, but that can't be that for all of the reasons we talked about last week. No, in verse 13, scratch it a little bit more. Paul is exhorting us as believers whose salvation is secure to act like it. You're a Christ follower. You claim that title. Live like it. Back in chapter 6, verse 11, if you want to glance back a page or so, Romans 6, 11, Paul said, Reckon yourself to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul is just picking up that theme and continuing, building upon it, carrying it forward. Chapter 6, he said, Reckon yourselves dead to sin. Now in chapter 8, he's saying, and, and reciprocally, reckon your sin dead to you. The sinful stuff you used to do, the unholy ways that you tried to cope with life, be done with it. It's over. Declare it finished. It's in the rear view. Turn to Galatians 5. We'll come at this from another angle. What Paul says in Romans 6, what Paul says in Romans 8, it's no different than what Paul said several years earlier when he wrote to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. If you're not there, it's okay. It's just one verse. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Crucified, murdered, killed, stomped out. But Paul is saying in Romans 8.13, it's no different than that. Those who are in the spirit have crucified the flesh. It's no different if you think about it than when Jesus says in Mark 9, beginning at verse 43, if your hand offends you, do what? Cut it off. If your eye is the problem, yank it out. Mark 9, starting in verse 43. Was Jesus being literal when he said that? No, he's telling us the same thing Paul's telling us. If our flesh is the problem, and it is, we got to murder the flesh, crucify it, walk away from it, walk away from its lusts, its habits, its promises, its practices. Walk away, Renee. Do not look back. Okay, old people laughed. Young people think I'm weird. We're right on track. But 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 you know it actually works. Walker Renee was a breakup song. It works because Paul is telling us to end our relationship with our flesh. Break up with your flesh. Go away. Don't call me anymore. Lose my number. Don't text me. I'm blocking you. You're dead to me. Crucify your flesh, Galatians 5.24. In verse 25, okay, I lied, two verses. Crucified your flesh and if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Choose to walk in the Spirit because we can. We get to. Because we get to, we got to. And as we make that choice, if we do, if, back to Romans eight thirteen, we put to death the deeds of the body, deeds of the flesh, sinful stuff that used to define us, we will live. We'll live the lives that Christ purchased for us. We'll live in him. We'll live Christ-centered lives, spirit-filled lives. If we make the choice. Said last week, said it again this week, it's not automatic. If it were, Paul wouldn't have to tell us Galatians 5.16, a little above where we were. Okay, that's three verses, I'm lying a lot today. Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Galatians 5.16, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. And, and, And see, what this brings us to is an incredibly neglected concept in the body of Christ neglected and it's strange to me it it almost baffles me considering how much Paul talks about this we've been two different places in Romans a couple different places in Galatians already we're going to be in Ephesians and the gospel of John before we're done again and again we read about being filled with the spirit walking in the spirit but we don't talk about this a lot we don't practice this a lot it's baffling Until we remember a little bit of church history, there's a reason that we got here. There's a reason that this idea of being filled with the Spirit is alien in a lot of churches. It's an alien concept. It's a foreign idea. Super quickly, a little church history, super quickly and incredibly oversimplistically, we talked at the beginning of our study in Romans about the birth of the Roman Catholic Church. The year 312, Emperor Constantine says, hey, I'm a Christian now. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. But by the time he dies, church and state, the lines between them have gotten pretty blurry. Christianity is unofficially the official religion of the Roman Empire. Emperors are more and more trying to exert authority over the church. Bishops are vying. They're playing the political game. They're vying for influence with the emperors. They're leaving the word of God behind. Fast forward to 476. Roman Empire, as we know it, falls. Church steps in to fill the vacuum. Leaders lead. There's no longer an empire leading, so the church fills the void. So the the roles have reversed. It's no longer the empire, the political entity, influencing the church. It's the church now rising up to run the empire. And, And first, they're just ruling over Rome proper, but a couple, but a few centuries later, by 962, the holy Roman, Emperor, holy Roman Empire is born. The Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman, it was just an empire. But it was an empire with the Catholic Church at the center. And it was during that time that the abuses that the Catholic Church became known for really set in, really began to take hold, restriction of the Bible to the priests. People like you and me couldn't read the Bible. The perversion of the gospel. It was no longer salvation by grace, it was grace joined with good works. Devotion to the Pope. The Pope is infallible. Uh, Elevation of tradition above the word, and so on. Until the 1500s, when we have the Reformation... People like Zwingli and, and Luther and Calvin speaking out against that, that collection of unbiblical practices, determined to return the Bible to the people and determined to bring the people back to the true gospel. We talked about this earlier in Romans as well, the five solas. The fact that, that our authority is the word of God alone. That tells us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Well, from the Reformation comes Protestantism, starting with, with churches that today we might call fundamentalist. And I know that's a loaded term, but, but for the sake of bundling to them together, fundamentalist, evangelical, we could call them a lot of things. Let's just for the sake of a, a shared vocabulary, let's, let's say fundamentalist, grounded in the word rooted and grounded in in, in calling what's fundamental in in their belief and practice God's Word. you got the Lutheran Church in Germany, the Reformed Church in Switzerland and later in the Netherlands, the Presbyterian Church, John Knox in Scotland, all with a high view of Scripture, all with an admirable devotion to the Gospel, all with relatively little attention or emphasis on the present-day ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. And it's not hard to understand why. Their priority was the Bible, because it needed to be. If they had a motto, it might have been let my people read. They were focused on the word, they were focused on the gospel, that we're saved by grace through faith and not works. And, And those two things, that's a full time job. We sometimes talk about essential doctrines, doctrines having to do with the Word and the cross and salvation. The Reformers' ministry and the ministry of the churches they founded, the the tribes, the denominations that came out of their ministry, were all about the essentials. It's all they had time for. It consumed all of their bandwidth. And 500 years later, today, that remains, by and large, the churches that haven't gotten flaky and left the Word of God altogether the, the, the churches that remain true to the word are true to the word and very little else. That's how they began. That's how they've continued. And that's understandable. Some people, let's do a compare and contrast. Some people will, will criticize Calvary's relative emphasis, let's say, on eschatology. We talk a lot about prophecy in the end times. And sometimes those who, who criticize us for that will point out, well, the reformers didn't talk about that. The Puritans never wrote about that, the implication being, so why do you again? Yeah, Luther, Calvin, Knox, their contemporaries, they didn't talk about eschatology. I can't think of anyone who wrote in the 1500s or 1600s who was writing about end times. They had more important things to do. If we don't have have a right understanding of the word of God and the gospel and what Jesus accomplished in his first coming, his second coming isn't going to make a of difference. Draw, draw an archery target. and The bullseye, you got the word, you've got the trinity, you've got the gospel, you've got the cross. Those are the bullseye. They're essential. They're non-negotiable. Those are the things we have to agree on if we're to call ourselves Christians. Things like eschatology, that, that's the outermost ring. And pneumology, doctrines having to do with the Holy Spirit, that's not the bullseye either. Closer to the center than tribulation and rapture and Antichrist, but still not essential. So we can understand why it took a while, in fact, it took until the 1700s, for the Holy Spirit to really become any tribe or denomination's focus. It was the 1700s when ministers like John and Charles Wesley looked at each other, looked at their ministries, and said, we're missing something. Something's missing. There must be more. There's an X factor. What is it? Who is it? And so in the 1700s, we had the birth of the Methodist Church and other tribes, other denominations like them, who began to give the Spirit of God the same attention as the Word of God. They began to give the Spirit of God the attention that the Word of God says we need to pay. Began to emphasize the ministry of the Holy Spirit, baptism of the Spirit, gifts of the Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. Now don't, the Holy Spirit was working the whole time. The Holy Spirit didn't take a coffee break for 500 years. Holy Spirit brought about the Reformation. Holy Spirit initiated revivals like the Great Awakening, which produced John and Charles Wesley and and many others. The difference is now people were talking about him, acknowledging him, studying him, seeing him in a different light, seeking him and relying on him in a different way. Fast forward to the 1900s, early 1900s, Charles Parnum is holding revival meetings up in Topeka. You got the Azusa Street Revival in 1906 in Southern California, the Welsh Revival in Wales, obviously, in 1904. I'm doing that from memory, but I think I'm right. And we see the birth of Pentecostalism happen. And, and denominations like the Assemblies of God and Church of God in Christ and Foursquare, denominations for whom the Holy Spirit is absolutely central. Absolutely critical, non-negotiable to their belief and practice. And from them came other groups who emphasized the Holy Spirit even more, who emphasized experience of the Holy Spirit even, even at the expense of the Word. It, they believe the Holy Spirit, the experience of the Spirit, is more instructional, more foundational, even than the Word of God. That's not good. By the way, it's just what happened. But Calvary, I think most of you know this, comes from that Pentecostal branch in our ch- ch- the church family tree. Not, not the extreme Pentecostal, but Pastor Chuck was a four-square pastor for decades before he left the denomination to take the pulpit in a non-affiliated little church called Calvary Chapel that had 25 people at the time. But from the beginning, Pastor Chuck and Calvary have always sought to avoid the uh, extremes of both camps. The, the hyper-fundamentalism on the one hand, an overemphasis to, on the word to the point where the Holy Spirit is relegated to the sidelines, and hyper-pentecostalism on the other, what Chuck would sometimes call charismania, where the word of God is relegated to the sidelines. Obviously, this is, this is one of the things this isn't isn't a a paid commercial advertisement for Calvary. It's just one of the things I think that we get right. Because Jesus talks about the the importance, the centrality, the primacy of the word of God in the life of the believer. And he talks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the essential importance of that in the life of the believer. It shouldn't be an either or. It has to got a must be, a both and. And part of that both and... Part of the ministry that Jesus talks about is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's a, it, it, and, and, and we would say, I would say, that that's a separate ministry from what happens at justification. A separate experience from the sealing and the indwelling and the other ways the Holy Spirit interacts with us. We talked about this a bunch when we were in 1 Corinthians 13, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay 30,000 feet this morning. If this is brand new and I'm freaking you out, grab me after service. But the short version, by way of review, the Holy Spirit comes alongside us. He's with us, convicting us of sin. That's our first relationship with him. Then he comes in us at salvation when we confess our sin and ask forgiveness. He comes in us. And then subsequently, maybe simultaneously, maybe subsequently, but as a different transaction, he comes upon us For power, power to love, power to serve. And the book of Acts is full of examples of that. The example that we use most often is Pentecost, where Jesus' followers, people who are already saved, they're already indwelt by the Spirit, are told by Jesus just before he ascends to heaven, Hey, don't rush off to start doing ministry. Don't run off and start evangelizing yet. Tarry in Jerusalem, Acts 1:4. Hang out until the Spirit of God has come upon you, until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.5. And that happens 10 days later at Pentecost, the birthday of the church. That's the example we use most often. The one I like best is actually Jesus himself. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's your quiz for this morning. When? In the womb, Luke 1.15. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, but at his baptism... Matthew 3.16, right before he begins his ministry, right before he heads into the desert with Satan, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit comes upon him. Because remember, Jesus does ministry the same way that we do ministry, through the power of the Holy Spirit. All of which to say, baptism of the Holy Spirit, incredibly important doctrine, shows up in all four Gospels, plus the book of Acts Jesus telling us, will receive power, Acts 1-8, when the Holy Spirit comes upon us, baptizes us, to love and serve and live for him. Martin Lloyd-Jones says to, to deny the baptism of the Holy Spirit is to quench the Holy Spirit. I agree with that. R.A. Torrey, if you want one book to read on this doctrine of baptism of the Holy Spirit, read Baptism of the Holy Spirit by R.A. Torrey. He says the baptism of the Holy Spirit is an absolute necessity for preparation for effective service for Christ. I agree with that. Pastor Chuck, in in a a really excellent book on the Holy Spirit called Living Water, (laughs) says, I'm convinced that the greatest need in the church today is a renewal of the teaching on the subject of the Holy Spirit. Only then will you and I be empowered to go into the world as effective witnesses for Jesus Christ. The only hope for our nation today is a spiritual awakening that begins in the church with a fresh movement of the Holy Spirit upon the lives and hearts of the saints of God, and this takes the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I agree with that. I think that's more true now than 28 years ago when he wrote it. But here's the thing. Just as John Wesley looked at his church, looked at the church of the 18th century and said something's missing... I think that, that we've fallen into the trap of so promoting the baptism of the Holy Spirit, so emphasizing it, that we end up uh, in a place where we look at each other and say the same thing that Wesley said, there must be more. We've got the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we've cracked the code, we found the key. But we still look at each other and we say, but, but, but there's something missing. And there is. There is. We might be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, sealed by the Spirit, baptized by the Spirit. But back to Romans 8.13, are we living in the Spirit? That's our big idea this morning, right? Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a book entitled The Holy Spirit, says this. I want to know, he, a- he actually asks, he starts with the question, I want to know, have you experienced the fullness of the Spirit? I know that many of you would want to say to my question, well, we got it all at conversion. There's no need for any more experience. Well, I have only one other question to ask you. If you got all at the conversion, if you got all of the Holy Spirit at conversion, where in God's name is it? You've got to love the doctor. And that's not just a question for Calvary lump Presbyterian and Reform and Lutheran and and some of our Baptist friends together, call them fundamentalists just for the sake of calling them something. Lump AG and Kojic and Vineyard and Foursquare all together, call them Pentecostal for the sake of calling them something. Put Calvary in both camps and neither camp, it doesn't matter. Because the problem we all run into, people in, in both camps and people in between, we tend to think about our relationship with the Holy Spirit in the past tense. The ministries of the Holy Spirit that are most important to us are the ones that have already happened. <laughs> Fundamentalist says, okay, I was indwelt and sealed and baptized. It was one stop shopping. It all happened at once. Fine. Pentecostal says, no, it doesn't all happen at once. It happens in stages and at different places. Fine. What we all agree on, including all of the dozen, dozens of variations and subsets and nuances, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. If we're believers, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit when? In the past. The baptism of the Holy Spirit happened, for most of us, in the past. If you're sitting here, you're scratching your head and saying, I'm not sure I ever was baptized in the Holy Spirit. I don't know that he ever came upon me with power. I don't ever remember praying for that. You should. And and I'm going to hang out on this side of the the platform after service. And and if you want to talk about that, let's talk about it. Because it really is important. But for most of us, Baptism of the Holy Spirit is something we talk about in the past tense. It's already happened, and that's a problem, family. It's not a problem because it's not true. It's a problem because it isn't enough. And we can see it isn't enough. We can look around. We know. It's obvious it isn't enough. Because what did Jesus promise in Acts 1-8? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will have what? Power. Power. Power to serve God. Power to be witnesses, which means power to love. Power to live for God. Power like Paul is talking about in Romans 8. And I know a lot of Christians who don't have power. I know too, most is a big word. I'm going to say most of the Christians I know. Fundamental, Pentecostal, both, neither, doesn't matter. Most of the Christians I know would tell me, do tell me, they don't have that kind of power. Not consistently. They tell me. A lot of you tell me. And sometimes I tell you. Go against flesh, and a lot of times flesh wins. Presented with an opportunity to serve, a lot of times self wins. Presented with an opportunity to forgive, a lot of times bitterness wins. Why? What does that mean? Are we not saved? Was I not, whatever you call it, Patrick, baptized in the Spirit? I don't think that's it for most of us. Yes, it's worth asking the question. Yes, both of those things are really important, but I don't think that's what it is for most of us. For most of us, it's not that we're not saved. It's not that we've not been baptized with the Spirit. It's that our relationship with God the Holy Spirit stopped when we were saved and baptized in the Spirit. That's when our relationship began, but it's also where it ended. Flip over to Ephesians 5. I referenced a verse earlier. I want to look at it in context. So often we feel like there's something missing in our Christian life, because there is. We say to each other, there must be more, because there's supposed to be. There's more than the Spirit coming to dwell in us or even baptizing us. There's the living in the Spirit that Paul talks about in 8.13. There's a filling and refilling that's supposed to be happening that he presumes that we're seeking. And he talks about that in Ephesians 5, verse 18. Let's back up. Go to verse 15. See then the. You walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, fulfilling your mission, being witnesses, loving and serving, being preaching the gospel, making disciples, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. You can't look to your left or your right. You can't look at society to tell you what to do. And don't be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. He's revealed it in his word. And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And the verb tense there is be being filled, present ongoing condition. Be being filled continually with the Spirit. Speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to your heart to the Lord. Making your life a worship offering. Making your life a hallelujah giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another, loving each other, serving each other, exhorting each other, encouraging each other in the fear of God. There is nothing about that passage, not the context, not the verb tense. There is absolutely nothing there that suggests that Paul is talking about a one-and-done transaction with the Holy Spirit. Everything we just read suggests that he's talking about an ongoing relationship Something we pursue and prioritize after we've been saved. After even we've been baptized. He says, go on being filled. Keep being filled. Be being filled. And Jesus promised we'd be able to. John 4, woman at the well. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. At the the well, Jesus promises what? For those who believe, a fountain of living water. In the Bible, water to wash in points us to the word, water to drink, Points us to who? God the Holy Spirit. Jesus promises an inexhaustible supply of His Spirit to those who believe. But Jesus picks His metaphor so carefully. That inexhaustible supply only benefits us if we avail ourselves of it, if we drink of it, if we're filled with it, with Him. Analogy I have a spigot on the side of my house. And that spigot, so far as I can tell, accesses an inexhaustible supply, an endless supply of water. So far, the city has been happy to provide and charge me for whatever I'm willing to pay for, as much as I want to use. And if you use more than a certain amount, they charge more, and that's really annoying. None of which is the point. The point is, I have an endless supply of water that comes to my house, it's up to me to use it. Every summer I have a choice. We all have a choice. Water my lawn, use that endless supply, and pay for it. Or ignore the supply of water and let my lawn brown out and die, which is what I choose. (laughs) But you and I have the same choice about the living water that Jesus offers. Choices, really. Because we got to keep choosing, Right? If I want my lawn to live, it's not enough to water it just once. I've got to keep watering it all summer. I've got to water it repeatedly, water it continually again and again. The lawn has got to keep being watered to live. We have to keep being filled with living water to live for Christ, to truly live, to live, to love, to serve, to worship, to walk in the Spirit. We need to be being Filled And, and, and the, the whole thing is so much of the church has lost sight of that. Our pride is much more comfortable keeping the Holy Spirit in the rearview mirror rather than in the driver's seat where he belongs. We'd rather argue and fuss and feud about whose view of the Holy Spirit and the baptism of the Holy Spirit is correct than dig into why is the Holy Spirit not having the effect Jesus promised that he would in our lives. I mean, I've got a baptism on ba- uh, perspective on baptism of the Holy Spirit. I just shared it. And, 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 and I spent a lot of time studying and, and, and praying and, and before I came to it. But the funny thing is, the longer I, I walk with the Lord, the less I care about it. The means, the mechanism, the verbs, and the pronouns. You're a fundamentalist. Great. You believe you receive the fullness of, of the Holy Spirit at the moment of your salvation, and dwelling, baptism, all at once. Fine. I don't care where's your power do you right now have the power to walk in the spirit to live the way that paul is describing in romans eight thirteen? if not if you feel like the you lack the power to love and forgive and serve and overcome your flesh and walk in victory and glorify god you need to be filled with the spirit i already was you need to be filled again you're a pentecostal I, I was I was saved, and then a month later, a year later, five years later, I was baptized with the Holy Spirit. Fantastic! Hey, yeah, I even speak in tongues to prove it. Some denominations teach that we don't, but you know, either way, it's the same question. You're baptized in the Holy Spirit. You got reason to believe that. That's great. Where's your power? Are you walking in the Spirit today? Is the Holy Spirit giving you wisdom to meet life's challenges, guidance to make decisions, patience to live among sinners, grace? To deal with saints? <laughs> is he giving you mercy to deal with the people who hurt you? Is he giving you joy even when life is hard for you? If not, you need to be filled with the Spirit. Already was. You need to be filled again. Rob reminded us a couple Wednesdays ago, we have all things pertaining to life and godliness. That's 2 Peter 1, verse 3. If I had a life verse, that might be it. We have all things pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1, 3. The Bible is part of how that's true. It's part of, the Bible gives us part of that all things. But the Bible doesn't do any good if we don't what? Open it. Read it. I've tried sleeping it with, with it under my pillow. It doesn't do much. <laughs> the Bible doesn't change it if we don't take it in. It doesn't change us. Holy Spirit is another part of how that's true. It's another part of that all things. But we don't get from the Word of God, we get largely from the Spirit of God. But just like the Word of God, it doesn't help, it doesn't change us, it doesn't make the difference we want it to if we're not taking Him in. And a lot of us are diligent about the first part. We read our Bible, we pray every day. We're studying the Bible, we're reading devotionally, we're reading and we're asking God in His Word to speak to us. And we pray diligently, God, would you heal this person? Would you move in this family? Would you pursue that prodigal? Would you provide for this need? Would you right this wrong? We pray diligently. We pray by faith because we don't want to be the kids who have not because we ask not. But do we ask every day, God, fill me afresh. Flip over to John 7 as we head for the finish line this morning. John chapter 7, Jesus, in just three verses, breaks it down for us. Okay, Patrick, I'm convinced I need to be filled. I need to be being filled. How do I do that? John chapter 7. In verse 37. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. How do I walk in the Spirit? How do I be being filled? Get practical for me, Patrick. Jesus just did. Jesus just told us. It comes down to three things. Three action steps as we wrap up this morning. To to, to be filled, to be being filled with the Spirit. Number one, got a thirst. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. That's the prerequisite. Step one is to know we're thirsty. To admit we lack something we need. You You know the saying, the Christian life isn't hard. It's impossible. We chuckle, we say, yeah, that's right. Amen then we still go and try to live the Christian life in our own strength. In recovery, you sometimes hear people talk about white-knuckle sober. Have you heard that phrase? People who are staying away from their addiction, but they're doing it in their strength, not in God's strength. White-knuckle sober. I know a lot of Christians who are trying to white-knuckle walk with God. White knuckle, live the Christian life. Try to be worshipful. Try to be God-glorifying in their lives. Sometimes they even succeed for a while, but even when they do, it's exhausting because it's an act of willpower, not spiritual power. What's the first step in recovery? Admit you got a problem. First step to being filled with the Spirit? Admit we have a need. We need His power. we got to confess, I thirst and I don't just need a sip. I need a steady stream. I need an endless fountain of Holy Spirit. And Jesus promises it's there for me. Be being filled with the Holy Spirit. How? 1. Recognize the thirst. 2. Jesus says come to him. Ask. Step 1 thirst, step 2 ask. Ask by faith believing Jesus wants you to be filled with the Spirit even more than you do. Think about it. Why are we here? Jesus left us here. He sent us into the world, what? To be witnesses. To be witnesses of what? God's love and power. We can't accomplish that if we're weak and defeated and discouraged. Jesus sent us into the world to be witnesses. He wants us to succeed. He wants us to live God-glorifying lives, lives that would be impossible in our strength. So he wants us to ask and keep asking. Step one, thirst. Step two, ask. Go to Jesus. Step three, drink, receive. Let the Holy Spirit fill us. Knowing, listen, knowing that as we do, we're not getting more of Him. He's getting more of us. That sounds like a fortune cookie, but go with me on this. Why do you suppose Jesus picked water to describe the Holy Spirit? One reason, water fills space. It fills a cup, it fills a pitcher, it fills a sink, but also if you pour water out, it finds cracks, it finds gaps, and it fills them. It finds a hole and fills that. Even things that appear solid paper, cloth, wood, earth water eventually soaks in, right? When Jesus urges us to be filled, what's he saying? When he says, drink deep, what's he saying? He's saying, let the Holy Spirit soak in and saturate you and have more of you. Let the Holy Spirit into areas of your life that you haven't surrendered. Let him drown idols that you haven't relinquished. The battles that you're fighting in your own strength. Let him take control. And as we do, what does Jesus say is going to happen? Rivers of living water will flow out consistently in scripture. I can't think of an exception. We're blessed for one reason. We're blessed to be a blessing. When we're filled with living water, verse 38, we'll pour out living water. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we'll pour out Holy Spirit. We'll pour out love. We'll pour out witness. We'll pour out service on those around us. We'll be a blessing. When we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit is coming in, ministry is going out. Can't separate who the Holy Spirit is from what the Holy Spirit does. Holy Spirit always points to Jesus, fills us to glorify Jesus in everything that we do, in everything that we are. As we're being filled with the Holy Spirit, ministry flows out, fruit flows out. As we're filled with the Holy Spirit, fruit happens. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Fruit of the Spirit. Things that Paul tells us have no other source. Galatians 5, and 23, the fruit of the Spirit is produced no other way than by the Holy Spirit. And the test of that fruit, let's take it in for a landing. Test of that fruit we talked about when we were in Galatians. The test of that fruit is what happens when life crushes us. When we are hard-pressed on every side. We talked about in Corinthians. When life crushes us, What oozes out from us? Think of a sponge when it's squeezed. When you squeeze a sponge, what comes out? The last thing that it's soaked up. Which means after we've been squeezed, which for most of us happens every day, multiple times a day, the most important thing we can do after we've been squeezed, after we've been poured out, is realize we're thirsty again. And go and ask again. And go and be filled again so we can be poured out again and again and again until Jesus returns. I'm going to ask Hector and Abby to come back up. Martin Lloyd-Jones retired from the pulpit in 1968, kept writing until shortly before his death in 1981. 1976, he published a commentary in the Armor of God passage in Ephesians 6 put on this and put on that and take up this. The passage starts off with Paul saying, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Be being strong in the Lord. And commenting on that verse as an exhortation to you and me this morning, the doctor said this, do you know anything of this fire this this passion to be being strong in the Lord and the power of his might. If you do not, confess it to God and acknowledge it. Repent and ask him to send the spirit and his love into you until you're melted and moved. Until you're filled with his love divine and know his love to you and rejoice in it as his child. And look forward to the hope of the coming glory. Quench not the spirit, but rather... Be filled with the Spirit. If we're doing one, we can't do the other, is his point. Quench not the Spirit, but rather be being filled with the Spirit. And so rejoice in Christ Jesus. Father, that is our prayer. That is the desire of our heart. We thirst, we need, we lack. And so we come before you now, we ask. And we expect. We stand on your promise. And we ask knowing that you want to answer our prayer more than we even pray. want to pray the prayer. Jesus, fill us afresh. Fill us and overflow us.